This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. We would love to have you join us at one of our church services on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Today's episode features a speech from a 2022 family conference hosted by the British Reformed Fellowship, the topic of which was union with Jesus Christ. We hope you are edified by this content. It is my hope and inclination in this speech that never again will you think or hear of the death of Jesus Christ without, as it were, seeing your own face in the Jesus who hung and died on the cross. To state it more correctly, never again will you hear of Jesus' death without whispering to yourself, I was hanging there on the cross with him, and in him. You and I did not die with Jesus Christ in the sense that we shared his atoning suffering and death. You did not die with him in the sense that you shared his atoning suffering and death, his satisfaction of God's justice against your sins. With regard to the atonement, he died alone, and he alone died. You did not die with him, but he died in your stead. The objection that we have as sound, reformed, and Presbyterian Christians to every form of works righteousness and every form of conditionality in salvation is that it puts man on the cross with Jesus Christ to accomplish salvation from sin, a horror than which no horror can be compared or be superior. But with regard to the benefits of his death, with regard to your being a beneficiary of the death of Christ, you died with him. And you died with him by dying in him. In this important respect, he did not die alone. He died as the head of his body, a body made up of innumerable men, women, and children. You were there, in that sense, hanging on the cross with him and in him. Whenever you read or hear or think about the death of Christ, you may then, and you must, say to yourself with utter conviction, I was there on the cross in him. Even though this particular aspect of our union with Christ is mysterious and wonderful, we can understand it. We cannot comprehend it, but we can understand it. And we can understand it because the Bible explains it, explains it for our comfort, explains it for our resting upon the crucified Jesus Christ, for all our salvation, and for our thankful love of God who privileged us to die in Christ. There are clearly and mainly four respects in which you and I died with Christ, four respects in which we have or had union with Christ's death, four respects in which we share in his death today. We died with him first with regard to our justification or being righteous. We died with him in the second place with regard to sanctification or being holy. We presently always die with him regarding the persecution of us. And when we die in the body, we are dead with him regarding physical death. It may very well be that you are quite familiar with the first respect in which we died with Christ, that is regarding our justification. It may very well be that it surprises you that I add three other respects in which we died with Christ. That is, regarding sanctification, regarding persecution, and with regard to our own bodily death. I confess that I myself think that I learned something in my preparation of this lecture on our union with the death of Christ, as I will acknowledge in the appropriate moment. 
The first and fundamental respect in which we had union with Christ in his death is taught in Galatians 2, verse 20, which we read, quote, I am crucified with Christ, end of quote, and what follows, concluding with, quote, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, end of quote, referring, obviously, to Jesus' death by crucifixion. The first thing to notice about that text is that in the original Greek, here you get some instruction in the Greek language once more, that can't be avoided. It's important to an explanation and understanding of the text. I say, the first thing to notice about the text is that in the original Greek, the verb that is translated, I am crucified, is in reality past tense. I was crucified. And that on the very face of it should make more sense. What does it mean that I am crucified? But it's understandable if mysterious, that I was crucified. And that's what the text states. I was crucified with Christ. The apostle is referring to the actual historical crucifixion of Jesus in the past. When Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem by the order of the Roman government in about A.D. 33, I and you and everyone else who now believes in Jesus Christ were crucified with him, were hanging on the cross with him. He was not on his cross alone. He was not by himself alone. A multitude was with him. The second thing to be noticed from the text itself concerning this marvelous reality is the reason for it and the explanation of it. That is, according to the text, Christ's love for us, which moved him to give himself for us by the death of crucifixion. I only note how great the love of Christ for you and me must be. We measure it by what that love drove him to do, to give himself to the death of the cross out of that love that he had for us. How great is the love of Christ for us. Plainly then, being crucified with Christ was of great benefit to us. He did not give himself to the death of the cross for no reason or for little purposes as far as the benefits of that cross were for us. The benefits, obviously, of the crucifixion of Christ were great toward usward. Plainly also, his giving of himself for us in the death of the cross was not due to us ourselves or to any worthiness on our part. The explanation of his giving of himself to the death of the cross is his act of grace. He gave himself. The explanation is his love for us, for whom he gave himself to the death of the cross. The third important truth about this statement of being crucified with Christ is the context. The entire book of Galatians and the passage in which this statement occurs. The truth that the apostle is teaching and defending is justification by faith alone. How one became, becomes righteous in the judgment of God. That is, the forgiveness of sins and standing before God the judge as those who have perfectly obeyed the law of God. This is the main truth of the entire epistle to the Galatians. And this is the truth that the apostle is, is teaching in the verses immediately preceding and immediately following Verse 20. I point to the verse that precedes. In Galatians 2. 
Verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's the context, the preceding context of verse 20, which establishes that the message of verse 20 is the truth of justification by faith alone. And verse 21 also confirms this. I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The second thing to be noticed from the text itself concerning this marvelous reality is the reason for it and the explanation of it. Christ's love for us, which moved him to give himself to death by crucifixion. I was crucified with Christ Therefore, with regard to justification, our union with Christ is a union for the benefit of justification. We must be clear what justification is. God forgives all our sins. He does not hold them against us, regarding us as guilty on account of them and punishing us for them. That's negative. That's justification in his negative aspect, he does not hold our sins against us and punish us for them. There's a positive aspect to justification, and that positive aspect is that God declares us perfectly righteous as persons who have fully obeyed his law and therefore rewards us with all the blessings of salvation, including eternal life in the body and in the soul. Justification is the foundation, the basis of all salvation. As we heard this morning, the cause or origin of all our salvation is God's eternal election. The basis of it is justification. This death of Jesus Christ, this crucifixion of Jesus Christ for us accomplishes both our pardon and our status of perfect obedience in the presence of God. I referred in my original speech to a heretical movement that is spreading in North America called, called the Federal Vision. The Federal Vision, among its other heretical teachings, teaches that Christ accomplished our justification in its negative aspect. He bore our punishment and took our punishment away. But, say the men of the Federal Vision, we ourselves must accomplish our positive justification, that is, our status as obedient to the law of God by our own good works. That's a denial of justification by faith alone, as they admit, and the doctrine of justification by faith and by works. Christ took away the punishment. You yourself must supply the obedience that God demands. A terrifying thought, if you know yourself in your own life, even at its best. In the cross, all your guilt has been removed and been removed by the full satisfaction of the justice of God regarding your sins. God has nothing against you after Christ has died. No punishment remains to be suffered in this life or in the eternity to come. If you are not guilty, and that's what God pronounces in justification, he says about you as the judge of you, not guilty. If you are not guilty, you are righteous. And that is what God declares you to be in justification. And if you are righteous, you are worthy of God's blessings in this life and in the life to come. The explanation of this is that Christ gave himself for you as the last part of verse 20 in Galatians 2 teaches. He did this because he loved you. He suffered and died in your place and on your behalf because he loved you. 
His crucifixion was substitutionary. He took your place. He took on your guilt so that you could share in his righteousness. The explanation of your having been crucified with him is that he represented you. You were in him legally. You and I, of course, were not there. That was almost 2,000 years ago when he was crucified. We were not there physically. We were not even born at that time, but we were there with him as really and truly as though our bodies were nailed with his to the cross by God's arrangement as, his, as our representative. Just as Adam was our representative in the fall, so that we incur the guilt of his sin. So Christ was our representative in his suffering and death, so that we are righteous in him. We were crucified with Christ in payment of our sin and to satisfy God's justice, so that we might be justified. Our righteousness does not come to us, therefore, by our works, or by the law, as the apostle expresses it in Galatians 2, but by Christ's death, so that we died legally in him. We receive this righteousness of the cross and are assured of it by faith in the crucified Christ. I point out that although we were crucified with Christ some 2,000 years ago, we must have this righteousness now in our sinful earthly life in A.D. 2022. We have it and are certain and assured of our crucifixion with Christ by faith and by faith alone. That's what Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, quote, by the faith of the Son of God, end quote. And that means by our faith that has the crucified Son of God as its object. By our faith in God's crucified Son, we have the righteousness that Christ earned for us by his suffering and death on the cross. And it's by this faith in the crucified Christ that every believer is certain that he or she was crucified with Christ. Notice the personal aspect and emphasis in Galatians 2 verse 20. I was crucified with Christ. That's personal. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's personal. The teaching of some Reformed and Presbyterian churches that most of the believers may and ought to remain in doubt concerning Christ's crucifixion for them and therefore their righteousness in the cross of Jesus Christ is a dreadful departure from the personal character of the gospel particularly in Galatians 2, verse 20. By faith, we enjoy that righteousness, and by faith, we are certain that this righteousness is imputed to us. Summarizing, then, we died with Christ with regard to the saving work of justification. We are in union with Christ's death with regard to our justification. We died with Christ also with regard to our sanctification. And this, my friends, is not so well known and acknowledged among us. That we have union in Christ's death with regard to our justification is familiar to us, and that's a good thing. But that we are somewhat ignorant or cavalier with regard to our union with Christ's death regarding our sanctification is a bad thing. That we died with Christ also regarding our sanctification is the gospel truth of Romans 6, especially verses 1 through 14, which we have read. Romans 6 begins the apostles' treatment of the grand work of salvation that is called sanctification. Sanctification describes the work of God in Jesus Christ of making us holy. Justification describes the work of God of declaring us righteous. Sanctification has regard to the work of God of making us holy. 
Holiness is the power of devoting ourselves to God from the heart and doing so by obeying God's law. Here the law comes up as the guide of the thankful life of the justified elect believer. We do not devote ourselves to God by obeying the law in order to make ourselves righteous and worthy of salvation. That was accomplished by the crucifixion of Christ and our justification by that crucifixion. But the purpose and nature of sanctification is that we thank God for his salvation of us by the cross of Jesus Christ. As we read and explain Romans 6, we must remember that the theme of that passage is sanctification, not justification. After God justifies the elect sinner, he also always sanctifies him or her. God is not a partial savior. He delivers us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the pollution and power of sin. And here I appeal to your experience as a believer and my own. Freely God delivers us from the guilt and shame of our sins, from the punishment, from the fear of his wrath, and from the terror of eternal hell. And then he works in us gratitude so that sincerely we cry out to him, How can I thank you for such goodness, earned by the death of your own son? And the answer comes back from heaven, by living a thankful, holy life. And that answer is a divine power that causes us to be holy and thankful. By this word, God does not simply say, I would like you to be holy, and now it's up to you. But God exhorts us to be holy and makes us holy by that exhortation. Paul teaches this aspect of salvation, especially in the first part of Romans 6. Romans 6, you will have noticed, is introduced by the first verse. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in our sin? Because we have been justified freely by grace and apart from our works. Since there is no compulsion or requirement to work, to obey God's law and to be holy in order to be righteous is the implication now that we can live carelessly and lawlessly giving way to our evil lusts and desires. At the beginning of Romans 6, the apostle considers the objection that gracious salvation will make God's people careless and profane. And don't dismiss that danger and don't dismiss that consideration of that danger because invariably those who oppose the doctrine of justification by faith alone will charge that this opens up the way to the careless life and the profane life of those who believe justification by faith alone. The apostle considers that objection decisively. And what follows in Romans 6 will guard against this fear by teaching that God saves us not only by justifying us, but also by sanctifying us. Then he goes on to teach as the truth of sanctification the following. Verse 5, we were planted together in the likeness of Christ's death. That's union with the death of Christ. That's how we are sanctified. We are planted together engrafted in a certain way into the death of Christ. And the point is, no one who is so united to Jesus Christ will live carelessly and profanely. No one who is implanted into the death of Christ will take the position, I may live as I please, because my justification and basic salvation is by grace alone. We were planted in the likeness of Christ's death. Also, in Romans 6, we are told that our old man is crucified with him. Verse 6. And here I must correct the translation of the King James Version. Little as I like to do that. Similarly to the correction I made in the translation of Galatians 2, verse 20. 
Actually, the Greek original doesn't read our old man is crucified, but our old man was crucified with reference to the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago. One thing that happened at that cross is that your old man was crucified by Christ hanging on and dying upon the cross. Wonderful things happened at the cross of Christ. I myself was crucified in that cross, according to Galatians 2, verse 20, which we have considered. And now we learn that our old man was crucified in that cross as well. The benefit of the crucifixion of our old man and the crucifixion of Christ is proclaimed in what follows in Romans chapter 6. We are freed from sin, verse 7. Don't take these things for granted. Think it through. You were freed from sin when Christ was crucified. You may have all kinds of questions about that. You may challenge that statement by saying, I have many sins, and all of the rest of God's people whom I know have many sins. How can it be that we were freed from sin, but take seriously the inspired word of God here. At the cross, we were freed from sin. The apostle goes on in his description of sanctification as a benefit of the cross. We may and should reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin. Do you do that? Have you ever done that? Do I do that? Have I ever done that? Reckon myself dead unto sin. Verse 11. Also, we need not and should not let sin reign in our mortal body. Verse 12. Have you ever combated a powerful temptation that way? Have I responded to this powerful temptation? I need not let sin reign in me. And I should not let sin reign in me. Then in verse 14, the apostle adds, again in explaining sanctification, sin shall not have dominion over us. Sin shall not have dominion over us. I was crucified with Christ, therefore, with regard to sanctification. Here is celebrated the saving benefit of crucifixion with Christ in a different aspect than was done in Galatians 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20 simply states that I was crucified with Christ. The context, as we saw, makes clear that the reference is to my becoming a righteous person before God. In Romans 6, verse 6, the apostle speaks of, quote, our old man, end quote, being crucified with Christ. Not I myself personally now, but my old man. That raises the question, what does Paul understand by the old man? And what should I understand by my old man? The old man of the regenerated, saved child of God is the totally corrupt, sinful nature with which he was born. And now pay attention carefully. And that remains with him even after he was saved, even until he dies. You and I are an old man. That's not all we are, but we are an old man. And we're going to continue to be an old man, or have an old man if you prefer, until the day we die. Regeneration, salvation, and the gift of faith does not remove or even mitigate the nature of that old man. Salvation gives us a new man, a holy man. But alongside this new holy nature remains the depraved nature with which you and I were born. That nature remains with us. The believer then is spiritually composed of two opposite, contrary fighting natures. The old man with which we were born and the new man that Christ gives us when he regenerates us and gives us faith. 
The old man, that's you, according to your sinful nature, that's me. The old man hates God, loves sin, and exerts itself to cause the child of God to sin in his thinking, his willing, his feeling, his speaking, his deeds, all. On the contrary, in an opposition, the new man, that's what you have or are in Jesus Christ, the new man loves God and God's will, repents of the old man and all his ways, and begins already in this life to obey God. This is my experience, and it's yours too, as a believer. It is almost as if I were two persons, a kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if I may introduce some secular literature. Now, about that old man, the apostle says in Romans 6, which is about your sanctification and mine, our old man was crucified with Christ. That's good news. That old man who always opposes what we are in Christ, causes us to stumble when we try to run, gives us evil thoughts which spring up almost automatically, even though we hate those thoughts the moment they come up in our mind. That old man was crucified with Christ. That old man was put to death with Christ by Christ's crucifixion. 2,000 years ago, my old man died. That's great good news for the believer who hates that old man, grieves over its presence and power in his life, and can even long for the day of physical death when he or she will be shed of that old man once and for all, perfectly forever. But this demands explanation inasmuch as that sinful nature seems to us to be quite alive, indeed healthy and strong. The explanation is that God realizes the crucifixion of our old man in stages and by exhortations. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, the apostle says in verse 11. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it. Verse 12. Either yield ye your members to be servants of sin. Verse 13. And the ground for these exhortations is what happened at the cross. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin because your old man was crucified. I want to take the opportunity tonight to emphasize that when in Romans 6 and other places the apostle gives us such exhortations, yield yourselves servants of righteousness and do not yield yourselves servants or slaves of sin. He means what he says and God uses those exhortations to accomplish what he exhorts. There is a teaching that with all these exhortations what is merely meant is that the Apostle wants to show us how incapable we are of doing this so that we never carry out these exhortations, we never obey these exhortations. God purposes by these exhortations undoubtedly to harden the unbeliever, but he also means by these exhortations and uses these exhortations to accomplish what the exhortation advocates. The result of these exhortations by the working of the Spirit in the church is that we do yield our members to be servants of righteousness and that we resist yielding our members to be servants of sin. The means by which the victory of the cross actually becomes ours are two, according to Romans 6. First of all, the means is the faith that receives the cross and its spiritual power. That's the knowing and reckoning of Romans 6. Faith lays hold of the power of the cross and applies it to the old man so that the old man is killed in us. He has a remarkable recovery. You can kill him at one night and the next morning there he is again, bright and shiny, 
so you have to kill him again. But by laying hold of Christ by faith, we do kill the old man. That's the power of our actual victory over the old man within us. And according to Paul in Romans 6, the other means is baptism. We have been baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. And the reference there is undoubtedly to the real spiritual baptism, the washing of us in the blood of Christ, but it's to the real spiritual baptism as signified in the sign and seal of the sacrament of baptism. The sense, and by God's grace, the power of your baptism as a child, undoubtedly for most of us, is that God uses that sign and seal as a spiritual power to cause us to put to death the old nature of the old man of sin within us. And what this means is that no Christian may ever say, I cannot, with regard to overcoming some sin in his or her life. As a pastor for 25 years before I went to the seminary in my work with the members of the congregation, I heard this time and again. I would work with a husband who was abusing his wife. He would say, that's all well and good, but I cannot stop abusing my wife. Another member of the church was addicted to pornography. And in response to the ad admonition, put that aspect of the old man to death, the response was, it's too powerful. I cannot be rid of that sin and temptation. No Christian may ever say, I cannot, with regard to any aspect of the exhortation of God to live holy lives according to the law of God. For your old man was crucified in the death of Jesus Christ. You were united to the death of Christ, and the death of Christ is powerful to give victory over any temptation, no matter how strong that temptation may be. The Holy Spirit applies the cross of Christ and its saving power to us, not only to justify us, but also to sanctify us. And that's hope, isn't it? When you find yourself in the struggle against some besetting sin that you hate, makes your life miserable and ruins it, and you know it's vile in the sight of God and men, you don't go into the struggle with that old man saying, I cannot, but you have the conviction that the power of the death of Christ applied to that sin is mightier than the power of that temptation and sin itself. There is also another reality of sharing in the death of Christ, which as I indicated at the outset is often overlooked. I'm referring to union with the death of Christ as the suffering of shame and pain and loss on account of our confession of the gospel and the truth of Galatians and also with regard to the living of a holy life. Confessing the gospel and living a holy life will bring down upon you shame, reproach, and loss of many kinds so that you have union with the death of Christ as his suffering of reproach, ridicule, shame, and scandal. This is the union with Christ's death that is taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. We'll see if I can find that reference more easily than I did the other one. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. That passage does not use the phrase in Christ or the phrase with Christ, but the thought certainly is that we share something in the death of Christ. Quote, bearing the dying of the Lord Jesus, end of quote. The death of Jesus, including all the suffering that led up to his death, 
was persecution, shame, and pain for our Lord. The very form of his death was extreme shame and extreme pain, the cross. In that death, we participate, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. We bear it about. We bear about the dying or the death of the Lord Jesus. That's a way of saying that in a way we share in that dying. I repeat, it is not as though we share in the redemptive nature of that death. But in that his death was hatred for him and the infliction of suffering upon him and the taking of his life by wicked men because of his faithful witness to God. We share in or bear the dying of the Lord Jesus. Paul speaks in the preceding context of his being troubled, perplexed, persecuted, and cast down. All of that suffering was a way of Paul's dying. And that dying was not merely like that of Jesus dying. It was the dying of Jesus. Take note of that. Paul's lifelong suffering as a Christian and as an apostle was his bearing about in his own body and his own life the dying of Jesus Christ. It was union with that dying of Jesus Christ itself as shared by the faithful apostle for his testimony that God is God. When Paul bore witness to the gospel, it brought upon him opposition, antagonism, and suffering of all kinds. Read the list of his sufferings in the second book of the Corinthians. And that, according to Paul, was his bearing in his own body and soul, the dying of the Lord Jesus. But that kind of dying was not limited to the apostle. It is a reality for every Christian. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Even more plain is a passage from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 16. 1 Peter 4, verse 13 and verse 16. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Confess God in Jesus Christ and live a Christian life, and you must expect to die continually always bearing about the dying of the Lord. There's no end to it. There's no let up about it. You will be ridiculed by the ungodly. You will be hated by relatives. In some lands already now, but everywhere in the near future, Christians will be fined, imprisoned, and put to death, especially under the Antichrist. We must not be surprised by this. We ought not to be frightened by this. We certainly may not, for this reason, silence our confession or compromise our living of the Christian life. We must expect this and view it as a sharing in Jesus' own dying. Persecution is the dying of Jesus, always in the suffering of his people. Such is his close, intimate relationship to his people that He dies continually in their dying. And such is the close intimate relationship of us with Christ that we are privileged to suffer in his death, to share his death in that regard. And this dying is in us, as in him, a victorious dying. Paul says about himself in those circumstances, not distressed, not in despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. My friends, 
This kind of union with the death of Christ, this sharing in Jesus' death and dying, is an honor. It's union with nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ. We're privileged to share his suffering with regard to its being the conduct towards that Christ on the part of the world and on the part of the false church. Have you ever thought of that? That you have union with the death of Christ and that you share his suffering as opposition to Christ by the world. The last respect in which we are united to Christ's death may be even more strange to you as it was to me. We are united with the death of Christ in our own physical death. We have union with Christ's death in our life. We have union with that death in our own death. This is the Gospel of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Not simply the dead, not even dead Christians, not even dead Christians who died once upon a time, but the dead in Christ. The dead who had and who still have some kind of union with the death of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, the second part, is one of the most glorious passages in the Bible on the truth of the resurrection of the believer in the body. Union with resurrection is not my assignment at this conference. But the passage also contains the great good news that the believer is dead in Christ at the moment of physical death and all the while that he lies moldering in the grave. Even though the emphasis in that passage may be on our union with the risen Christ, our union with the death of Christ is implied. Verse 14 begins the passage with reference to the death of Christ. Quote, if we believe that Christ died and rose again, etc. Now I confess that I struggled with understanding what it means that we have union in our death with the death of Christ. I did not see as clearly as I think I see now before what that means. I learned something through this conference myself. What the text is teaching, it's teaching about the dead presently in Christ in their dead state. It's talking about a corpse lying in the grave who had been a believing child of God. That union with Christ's death is not legal. It certainly is not a sharing in his life because the passage is talking about the dead in Christ. Presently, the dead believer is in Christ. The reference is not to the fact that he died with faith in Christ, but the teaching is that the dead believer is presently dead, and not only dead, but he is dead in Christ. As dead, he is the object of Christ's love in that dead body. And presently, he's being protected by the grace of Christ, lovingly preserved, and watched over with a view to the resurrection as a member of Jesus Christ. What this means to be dead in Christ, what this means that you have parents perhaps, and relatives and friends in the grave, about whom the text says that they are dead in Christ, may be understood by a strange event in the Old Testament. You can read it in 2 Samuel 21. David killed, or had killed, two sons of a concubine of Saul because the Gibeonites, who had been oppressed by Saul, demanded 
that this be done in a kind of expiation of the death of Saul. Two sons of this woman, whose name was Rizpah, were killed in that act of justice. Instead of letting her sons go, the woman immediately took up a position over their grave and for days and nights guarded their grave so that the corpses would not be eaten by the animals by day or by the, by the fowl by day and by the animals by night. There she sat for a long time guarding the grave of her two sons. And finally that came to the attention of David and he had the bodies buried. Those sons, though dead, were in Rizpah, their mother, in the sense that they were in the sphere of her protecting and preserving love. That's what dead in Christ means, I'm convinced, in Thessalonians 4, verse 16. When you die, you die with the loving protection of Jesus Christ over your dying and dead body. When you lie in your body moldering in the grave, perhaps for centuries, your body is in Christ. You have a sharing in the death of Christ because on the basis of his own death for you, including your body, he sheds his protective love over you with a view to the resurrection of that body in the day of his coming. We are united with the death of Christ with regard to justification. We're united to Christ with regard to sanctification. We're united with Christ with regard to the persecutions and hatred and opposition that we endure. And we're united in the death of Christ with regard to our own physical death. So we take our last breath. So our body goes down into the grave. So we lie in the grave, not apart from Christ, but in union with the death of Christ, with the good hope of resurrection. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will feature more speeches from the 2022 British Reform Fellowship Conference in upcoming weeks. Please send any feedback or questions you may have to hoperwc at gmail.com and we will respond promptly.